Welcome to BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. In this weekly audio series from BizNow, the global leader in commercial real estate news and events, we'll be tackling some of the biggest questions facing the industry and economy at large. On this episode, Alison Novak, who runs Sidewalk Labs Urban Development. The commercial development advisory business is part of Sidewalk Labs, which is a subsidiary of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Alison says the idea is to work with developers across the US to create more sustainable, innovative and equitable projects. The traditional way of doing development, she says, has to change. Projects are being cancelled and communities are becoming enraged. We're talking in a moment about how hard it is to measure the social impact of development. But first I asked her about her decision to leave developer Hudson Companies a year ago for this new job at Sidewalk. It was a really, really difficult decision for me to leave um, Hudson Companies. I was at Hudson for almost 15 years. Um, Hudson is a residential developer based in New York City and and Hudson does um, the entire range of housing from um, you know, townhomes to you know, high rises from affordable home ownership to light tech to mixed income to um, luxury condos um, and everything in between. And, and I really um, enjoyed working there and being a principal there. I think what what sort of changed my outlook um, was really the the convergence of the pandemic with the Black Lives Matter movement. I think it's not that I, those things didn't, I wasn't aware of, you know, the challenges of, of global society or the social inequities, but, you know, having that period of time where you really are sort of confronted with like, what, like, am I doing enough? Um, and when I was reached out to about the Sidewalk Labs position, what resonated with me was that this is an organization that is um, for-profit, but very much mission-driven. Um, and well-resourced. So the opportunity to work at a potentially a, a more um, material uh, scale than I was able to probably do at Hudson. You know, at Hudson, I could have very easily done a couple thousand more apartment units, um, which would be valuable. I don't want to um, suggest that that's not valuable because it, it is, and it's also very satisfying work in many ways. Um, but Sidewalk Labs, you know, is looking to shift the entire real estate industry ecosystem forward. And that was really appealing to me. That must have been very nerve wracking, though, like such a big goal matching up with uh, leaving a company that you've been at for so long. How did you have the guts, I guess, to pull the trigger? I think that it took, honestly, it took like some time. It took some months for me to go from from thinking sort of, oh, this I'm curious about this interview opportunity to this is something that I really feel so excited about doing that that there's it feels now like there's no other option. Um, and in between that, I had, you know, a network of, of mentors, of peers who I was able to, to talk with, and that made a tremendous difference to me. Um, but I could still, you know, remember the day that I went and... and talked with, um, you know, sort of my key business partners at Hudson about it. And that was a really difficult day. Um, it, it reminded me of, you know, the days in my youth when you would break up with the, this, the person you thought you were going to be with forever. That's, that's kind of like, you know, how seriously that moment felt to me. 
There's a lot of people that have gone through that in the commercial real estate industry over the past couple of years, I think. Big moves and people making big career calls. Um, so you're probably not the first person to have that difficult day. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. The, the great resignation is real. Yeah. So explain to me about how this works. Sidewalk Urban Development is the real estate advisory arm of Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs is an urban planning and infrastructure subsidiary of Alphabet. Now, Alphabet, of course, famously owns Google. So to the untrained ear, it kind of seems like Google is playing a role in real estate advisory and shaping urban development. Is that the case? I wouldn't say that. Um, So Sidewalk Labs is an urban innovation company, um, and it's composed of of urbanists and technologists. So people who really understand how the urban world comes into being, the challenges with it, the opportunities, and then the technologists who really understand, you know, all of the wide ranges of software and hardware and AI and all these things, all of these new ways that we really should bring to bear in how we do urban development. But honestly, the industry is is pretty far behind in in being able to do that. Um, And we, you know, we could talk at length about that as well. I have ideas about why. Um, Sidewalk Labs is um, considered one of the other bets. So AB Alphabet has Google and it has a range of um, other investments um, in companies where they really feel like the the work is at sort of that bleeding edge of change. Um, So, you know, we are able to um, sometimes help our friends at Google out if they have a client um, that's interested in in some aspect of real estate. Um, But we're really very separate, very separate. Do people understand that separation or do they kind of put you in the same bucket? Um, I think most people, to the average person, I don't think they necessarily understand the distinction. (laughs) Um, But it's, you know you know, definitely a, a different company. You know, we have our own CEO, our own president, and they, you know, report back to um, Alphabet as you would with any um, shareholders or investors. Um, but our, you know, office policy is our office policy. Our headquarters is our headquarters. Um, and so, you know, there's that distinction. But it has the benefit, of course, as I said, of being really well-resourced and, I think that that is um, a really important thing in order to push urban urban innovation forward. I know that you've said in the past that the way development has happened um, and the way that developers have approached projects doesn't really cut it anymore. I guess the way that, that it's happened historically. Projects have been cancelled. Communities are really upset. You've got 15 years of experience uh, in the development space. How have you seen it kind of come to this point? Yeah, you know, um, it's so... Interesting, like if you look back at a lot of just sort of like popular, you know, TV programs or movies or whatever, oftentimes the, de- the developer is the villain, you know, like even in Goonies, like the developer was going to come destroy their neighborhood. And I think that that's a reputation that is not entirely unfair, um, but it is somewhat unfair. There's a lot of developers out there who want to be additive. They want to, you know, enhance the U.S. economy. They want to enhance neighborhoods. They want to give people jobs and opportunities and and things of that nature. Um, I think that in the last, you know, let's call it 10 years or so, one of the things that we've seen is it's become increase. it's affordable housing has become an increasingly more 
um, dire problem. You know, we don't have sufficient, decent housing supply to keep up with demand. And at the same time, you're seeing more and more people living in cities. I think maybe it was 2010 when the balance of the human population shifted to living in cities versus not in cities. Um, and so now you've got a bit of a conflict because there are people who have more means um, competing for, you know, that limited housing supply within cities. And I think that, you know, it showcases the inequity that already exists in society through other sort of systemic institutionalized aspects, whether that is um, born out of really intentional programs of which there have been many we can point to or from inadvertent unintended sort of consequences. And I think the result of that is that you see not only the NIMBYs who I think in the past I would have characterized as like privileged people who don't want something that they don't want in their neighborhood because they don't like it or they feel like it brings down their economic value. And now we have um, a group of people at, at what I would you know, described as like the opposite end of the spectrum, which are like really um, progressive housing activists who are choosing to sort of try to balance that equation by saying like, if, if it's not affordable enough, we're going to push back really hard. If it's not, you know, like maybe they want the whole building to be affordable. Maybe the level of AMI isn't what they think it should be. And I think the effect of that though, is that you get projects where they just can't advance where either developers give up or um, you know, they may give up entirely and sell the site and go home. Or they may say like, fine, you know, you said that I had to do this and I can't do that, but I'm going to, so I'm going to resort to something that's easy for me to do, which doesn't meet with anybody's, um, you know, optimal, optimal goals. So it's kind of become a situation where there's incredibly progressive people. I'm thinking, for example, a lot of the tenant advocates, in New York City and a lot of people that have pushed against rezonings in New York City, for example, um, they're pushing one agenda against a developer who's pushing another agenda and then nothing gets done, basically. So maybe there were going to be a couple of hundred affordable housing development uh, units and now there's none. Is that is that fair to say? I think that's close, but I think that... I- that to me puts a little bit uh, too much blame like squarely on the progressives where I think there's still that element of like, you know, very sort of... I mean, they have a point. <laughs> they have a point in many... They definitely have a point. Um, but there's also... But there's sort of... it's what I think is sort of unique about this moment is that either formally or informally, they're, they're joining forces with people who just don't... Who don't want it for the more sort of traditional NIMBY reasons. Um, you know, like I did a project... And this was, you know, a number of years ago. And I heard from the the community, from people in the community who didn't want it. I heard, of course, from people who did. But the people who don't want something are more likely to speak up. And there was a whole range. There were people who said, I don't care if you build this building as tall as you want to make it as long as it's all affordable. I had people say, I don't care if you build this building as long as it's half as tall as you've planned. Because, and it can be all luxury, but I just don't want it to be so tall that, you know, there's, it has a shadow on my backyard. You know, like those are, I think that those are two understandable positions, but the effect of that is they were both against the building, but they had very different reasons. Why do you think it is that people have coalesced around or progressives or people that are pushing against this sort of difficult situation have coalesced around housing as a big problem? Is it just because rent and housing costs are so high? Because there are other problems as well. Wage stagnation is a huge problem. 
Why do you think it's development that people are kind of pushing against or why has that become the hot button issue? That's a great question. Um, I think that some of it probably has to do with the fact that housing is a pretty basic necessity. I mean, you might argue that like, you know, having a job enables you to have housing and food and all of those things. Um, I think it's also feels like there are fewer like limits, or, I'm sorry, fewer opportunities or more limits. Like, you know, if you can't afford, afford $2,000 a month for housing, you know, what are your options? Um, it's sort of really fundamental to our sense of like protection and safety. Um, you know, I, one of my professors in graduate school wrote a book called uh, Bourgeois Nightmares, and it talks a lot about the restrictive um, deeds and covenants on suburban developments, in particular how racist they were, but that overarchingly, like what, why were people so worried about that? Like people are sort of fundamentally nervous about change because change is really destabilizing for people who have something. Um, and so there's a real fear around that. And, and you know, cities and urban environments are complex ecosystems that no one can really control. You know, we're constantly trying to tweak them here and there and make them better for everyone. Um, but it's it's really nerve-wracking to see something happen in your neighborhood that is a change and, and to wonder how will this affect me and have sort of limited control and influence over that. Someone put it to me once is that they always see this development happening, but they never see the benefits for them. They see people making money and their lives not getting any better, basically. Yeah. So at Sidewalk Labs, you know, when we think about inclusive development, we have a couple of different categories that we are focusing on. um, And I think overlap with how other people are thinking about it. But uh, just speaking for us, like one of those categories is broad affordability. So what we mean by that is, you know, it's one thing to be able to, you know, be lucky enough to win that low income lottery apartment in your neighborhood. It's another thing if you can't afford a cup of coffee in your neighborhood and you have to get on a bus to go buy groceries. Like That's a problem. That's not broad affordability. Another thing that we're really interested in um, is is community equity and wealth building. And I think that is an area that I expect to see um, a lot of interesting new models really being enacting in the, enacted in the next probably three to five years. I mean, there, it has been happening, um, but I think they're gaining steam as people are recognizing um, the importance and also the opportunity there. So I would take, for example, um, Nico, which is a, um, a company that's, that's created the first um, SEC-approved neighborhood REIT. Um, they launched in, they launched the first REIT itself in 2020, which of course was, a, in retrospect, a pretty bad time to start something new um, because of COVID. But, you know, nobody knew on March 1st, really. Well, not many people knew, we'll put it that way, how bad it was going to get. Um, and, but it's a fascinating model because one of the, the ways that it could, it could be applied is you know, there are buildings within a neighborhood that you can essentially provide affordable fractional ownership in. And then you might not live in that building, you might live down the street from that building. But when that building gains in value, and it throws off a dividend, you get that. Um, And in theory, you know, over time, as the value of that building or that set of buildings, because it's a REIT grows, now you have a real estate investment. It's not only just a real estate investment that you can like, you know, log into some stocks and bonds type portfolio and see, but it's something that's within your own neighborhood. And so it creates a different, I think, alignment of incentives 
Um, you know, you're already incentivized to want to protect your neighborhood and see it be a place of, um, you know, opportunity for yourself and your neighbors and other generations. Um, but here's an opportunity for you to feel like you get something from something new coming into your neighborhood. And I would say that like with Nico, I know that, that, you know, Nico itself is a, is a B Corp. And so, you know, they're really focused, they are, they can focus on more than just sort of the financial aspect of it. And they were really thoughtful about creating the pricing for their shares um, to make it as affordable as possible. So I think in the first round, you could get 10 shares for $100. Um, you know, they also, there's a provision for, you know, charitable, you, you can you can allocate char- shares to a charitable organization, like a trust, and then have those dividends go back to the community. So I think we'll see more and more of those community equity vehicles that say like, here's real estate in your neighborhood and we want more actors to be able to participate in the wealth building that's there, which also recognizes that most most Americans don't build generational wealth from wages. They build it through owning real estate um, and trying to find ways to have that sort of passive income growth possible for more people. A, a concept like that, I, I imagine it's still risky, right? Like that, that's something that would make some people feel nervous. Like, is this going to work? <laughs> Are we going to lose money? Yeah, I, I think any investment comes with like a disclaimer paragraph, right? Like past results do not guarantee the future. Yeah. Um, and I think there are, well, there are two things I would say. One is that I think that, um, you know, you have to be careful and thoughtful about how much money you can risk for the you know perceived benefit of making money. That's true with any investment people make. Um, I think real estate by and large is an area where people invest because the real estate market has over, you know, hundreds of years really continued to accrue in value. It has its ups and downs. Um, But, you know, we haven't had such a setback that if you can't wait out the timing, you don't ultimately benefit for the most part. Of course, there are going to be places and stories where that's not true. You have, you know, you have to be diversified and be paying attention. Um, I think the other thing I would say is that there are other models that look to protect um, investors, um, particularly where they are looking at the community wealth building for a group of people who, for whom like losing that much money would be a real burden. So for example, um, there's a community investment trust. Um, the one that I'm thinking of is in Oregon where uh, basically a, a community group, this was, this was um, sponsored by Mercy Corps, they um, bought a shopping mall, a shopping center, a community shopping center, and were able to get a, um, a letter of credit that backs the investment of the investors um, to limit their, their risk of losing. So there are, other, there are other models. I think those models that guarantee returns are probably going to be less appealing to the commercial real estate market. Um, I, could, I, you know, I could be wrong about that. But I think for a commercial developer to say like, okay, I'm going to try this community wealth vehicle, um, that's like that's adding an, an additional lift to it that I think will take time to to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, it's a notoriously sort of dinosaur industry. It doesn't kind of because of just the nature of it. It takes a long time to build a building. You can't sort of be moving with the with the times as much as people would like, but these kinds of concepts are you seeing more of them are you seeing like a kind of a more of a an interest in this kind of 
wealth building and, and helping a community have an ownership in a development. Yes, definitely. Um, so we have, at, at, in our advisory business, we have clients all across um, the U.S. And I would say um, even the clients that we have initially been engaged with to talk to them about certain specific ambitious sustainability goals that they have, um, they, when we talk about how those sustainability goals may ultimately sort of impact the people within their community or the surrounding community, the conversation quickly broadens to sort of like this broader, you know, concept of equity in, and inequities. And they, they too are interested in this. Like we, we talked to a number of cities. Our, our primary client is a developer, um, but we do talk with cities. And I know that there are a number of them who are exploring these. Um, I think it's a really exciting area. And I, and my hope for it and where I see a path forward is that alignment between developers and communities because developers are recognizing like what we're doing is just getting more and more untenable. Um, you know, it's the, the level of adversity between, you know, adversarial nature between the developer and the community is so getting so, so bad, um, that it's hard to push projects forward that actually ultimately could be very beneficial. And so we need to find some other ways to have this conversation. And I think that for, you know, communities often end up feeling like the developer is quite extractive of them and developers go into the conversation feeling like the community is going to extract a bunch of things from me. (laughs) Both sides think that everyone's out to get them. (laughs) They do. So like that's how you see these community meetings where the developer's like, I'm going to build a hundred story building in your neighborhood and the community comes and said, we will only accept a five-story building. And they both know that somewhere between 10 and 20 stories is where it will end up. Um, but, you know, like we have to go through that, that like agonizing back and forth first. So if the developer could go to the community and say, like, I want to build something. I want to make money because my ecosystem, the people I need to pay, whether they're my staff or my investors, doesn't work unless there's money in it. And the community says... Like, we have to be able to benefit from this as well. Like, this has to be added to our neighborhood. We just need, like, a, some new devices to push that forward. And I think that some of these community um, equity vehicles may be one way to do that. Yeah, it kind of feels like it's the same old story over and again, over and over again. A dramatic meeting, then it's called off or it goes ahead and everyone's mad. Then we write a story about how the, the another project in the rezoning. I mean, I felt like in 2017, like I was writing constantly about MIH projects just falling over. This last year and a half, it's felt a lot about rezonings. I mean, the inward rezoning is a prime example that went through multiple court hearings and it's finally back on. Um and I'm sure there are plenty of people who are still very upset and angry about that. Yeah, it's really challenging. I think you're you're right. It's there's been so much of that lately. Um, it's, it's becoming more and more sort of daunting how to how to surmount that. Um, this also reminds me of another um, tool that Sidewalk Labs has. We have this product called Delve, which is D E L V, um, and it is a generative design tool where now probably the Delve people will be like, Allison needs a, like a sales pitch update, but this is the way I think of it as the developer. No sales pitches, no sales pitches on this podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. So this is my description, my description of how it works. Um, and I, it's leading back to this is basically, it's a tool that's primarily used by, you know, developers or, or designers to take a site and create a lot of different scenarios for what you could build on that site. 
And the way that the tool works is you tell it, you know, what the site is and what the restrictions are like zoning. And then it gives you a bunch of options so that you can say like what's most important to you. Maybe views are most important to you or housing or walkability or open space, whatever it is. And then it allows the computer brain to sort of cycle through and produce as many versions as possible. But of course, you don't want to get just like 5,000 versions and have to figure out now which one's the best. So then it ranks them based on your priorities and tells you. And then the humans pick the tool back up and say like, okay, this gives us new ideas and this takes us in a different direction. But I think a tool like that, um, and to my knowledge, you know, Delve hasn't been used like this precisely as yet. Um, but a tool like that where the community and the developer can look together at sort of a shared source of truth, I think would be another sort of powerful tool for it. Because what we have now is we have developers who go away, you know, in their black box to the community, they come up with like maybe a plan, maybe two or three plans that they show the community and the community says like, none of these exactly meet what we want and we feel like you can do better. So like that's sort of like where the conversation is. And then we say to the community, like, here are some foam blocks, like show us, you know, with these toys, how tall you think the neighborhood should be. Um, and then like, it's just like, those are not great ways to have a shared conversation. Um, so a tool like this, where you can sort of visualize um, together and feel like, you know, if you want to see what it looks like when everything's three times taller, type that into the computer, let's all see it you know, together rather than, you know, coming from our respective corners. Rather than us just saying, this is going to work. Here's the, here's the cardboard cutout of it. You're going to love it. And then everyone's saying, no, it's way too tall. Yeah. And it's hard because for developers, you know, there's a lot of, there's such a huge amount of risk in development. It's, there's so many times when a project can fall apart. And so I totally understand, I have firsthand experience about why it's, you don't, most developers don't want to go to the community and say like, hey, what do you want here? You have equal rights to deciding everything that I build. They're like a um, park. We want a park there. <laughs> we want a park. We want it all to be free. You know, like, yeah. so, so I understand why they, you know, they also come into the conversation feeling that it's a risky proposition to be completely open to, you know, all possibilities. So when Sidewalk announced um, this new advisory, real estate advisory firm, it, it released kind of details on four major projects that it's in, which are across the country. And as far as I understand, there's one in Portland, Oregon, which I was really interested to read about because it's a blank slate as far as I understand. It's going to be the Vancouver uh, Innovation Centre. Is, is that right? Yeah, the Vancouver Innovation Centre. It's, it's, um, it, we talk about it as being in Portland because everyone knows we're Portland, Oregon is. It's actually like right across in Vancouver, Washington, which is why it's called the Vancouver <laughs> Center of Innovation. And it's a really interesting site um, because it is, I believe it's 180 acres and it at present is not entirely, but m mostly composed of an enormous um, industrial property that is then surrounded by, you know, um, parking lots and some open space. And so the you new know, developer wants to come up with an innovative redevelopment strategy that will allow that property to be mixed use and to fit into its um its more suburban really context uh so that's why that's what we were working on with them one of the things is equitable growth so that's one of the key goals right to advise on how to make the growth equitable it's kind of hard to measure that this is this is um you've hit on one of my other like favorite topics right now 
which which I use a shorthand of the S and ESG, um, and so, the social right the social of the environmental, social, and governance policies. You know these policies um, came into vogue in like the night nineties, especially after two thousand. For a period of time, it was just big corporations that had them. Um, over time, more and more have more and more companies, and this is like across all industries have been um, have taken them up, whether through investor pressure, shareholder pressure, or just believing that it will make their company better. There's lots of different rationales. Um, what I think that we can see in those is that if we just think about the real estate industry, the way that people describe like the the E part, like what are our sustainability goals, is often fairly easy at this point to describe and it's very asset oriented it's like we do all lead buildings we do passive house we care about energy efficiency we're going to be carbon neutral but they really talk about their assets um oftentimes and when it comes to the s i feel like they oftentimes then just resort back to their company so it's like internally we have a dei policy a diversity equity and inclusion policy for hiring for promotions sometimes they talk about charitable giving Sometimes you'll find companies talk about the number of affordable units they create or their MWB hiring um, during construction, but it's pretty limited. Um, and I think that one of the things that I'm expecting, if, if I were to forecast a trend, is that over the next 10 years, that the S will have to catch up to the E in, in the sense of what is it that we measure? Like what is fair to attribute to a, a real estate project, which is honestly much trickier to figure out then like you can you can calculate the number of therms quite easily, but calculating the number of people who have jobs or are financially better off is a, is a much trickier thing um, to understand. So I don't think that we have a firm set of metrics. I think that there's some exploration to do there. And like, how are you going to, like in 10 years, are you going to say, well, these people's like, these, this was wage growth, these were jobs, these were quality of living, this had like a better lifestyle. I mean... I feel like I'm at a loss too. I'm like, how are you going to measure these really important things? I think that one of the things we'll have to look at is the different time periods because I think that we want to know right away. Like we want to know during construction if there's been a positive impact. We want to know during operations and we want to know long term. Um, I think that also, you know, if you, we want to know, I think some of the, um, the things that we do already to sort of quantify community benefits will will lend itself to this. We'll have to think about it. We'll have to refine it. But if you think about like sort of the MWB and contracting is a, is a pretty typical thing now for like a government body to require um, or to prioritize in terms of selecting a developer for an RFP. Um, there's some funding that, that comes with, you know, targeted requirements. And so I think that, you know, uh, developers voluntarily saying like our commitment is 20% all the time. That's our corporate commitment. That could be a thing. And that's something that you can easily measure during construction. It's frequently measured in construction. I think it's less frequently measured in operations, um, but really ought to be because it shouldn't be just the construction jobs. It should also be, you know, whatever else is happening on site, whether it's the porters for the building or, um, you know, the retail or what have you. And that's also, you know, possible to measure. Um, so I think we'll have to look back at some of the, the things that we think about now when we're trying to judge whether or not a, a project is giving sufficient community benefits and to try to extrapolate that to understanding sort of a broader um, appreciation by the you know private market. What's your optimism level, would you say, right now of 
how things are going, specifically about the line of work that you did. I mean, it's been about a year now that you decided to make this jump. It was obviously something that you considered a lot and that meant, meant a lot to you. And the issue, these issues within the industry are important to you. How do you feel about how things are going? Honestly, I'm really excited because being in this seat as an advisor, um, I'm able to see how different real estate firms across the U.S. are thinking and talking about this. Um, and it's really impressive. You know, we have clients who I would say are very ambitious and very far along in their thinking. They've spent a lot of time thinking about this. They have the teams to do it. Um, and we're just there to help like, help them figure out how to push, push along those ambitious values and goals. And then we have clients who are tiptoeing into it and they're not sure, there's uncertainty. Maybe there's a champion on the team, but a lot of people are skeptical. And to the extent to which like, they're still coming to us to talk about it, I think is really um, is meaningful. You know, I'm still an investor at Hudson um, and I love that too, because I, it gives me the benefit of seeing still sort of firsthand from the inside New York's recovery. And I think that that um, you know, trajectory may not be as sharp and up to the right as we want it to be, but it, it is happening. And so overall, I feel optimistic. It's a positive note to end on. Alison, thank you so much. I really appreciate you chatting and kind of toying with some of these concepts that we're all as a society facing. Thank you so much. It was really fun to talk to you. That's Alison Novak, the head of Sidewalk Urban Development. This podcast is produced by me, Miriam Hall. If you're enjoying it, do me a favour, subscribe and give it a review. It helps others to find us.